following sermon was recorded live at Foundation Church of Fredericksburg in downtown Fredericksburg, Virginia. All right, everyone, I am going to pray, and then we will open the Word of God. So please pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for your Word. Please illuminate it to us. Open our eyes and our hearts to see what you have to say to us. Father, also today, we would like to remember those who belong to this body but who are not here with us due to traveling or illness or other reasons. We pray that you would bless them and remember them and keep them safe so that they might return to us soon. In the name of Jesus, amen. So perhaps you will recall that all the way back in the spring, I began the first half of a sermon series dealing with the book of Genesis thematically. So I preached four sermons in the spring, covering the first 11 chapters of Genesis, one each on creation, the fall, the flood, and the Tower of Babel. And so I will briefly refresh everyone on sort of the nature of a thematic study of the Bible and a thematic sermon, because for this Sunday and then the next three after this, I will be finishing the book of Genesis covering Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, again, thematically. So there are several ways that we can study the Bible and several ways we can preach the Bible. The most common one that you will find here is what we call an expository sermon or an expository study. This is one in which we go straight through a book of the Bible, one verse, one section, one chapter to the next, and we look and see what it says and what it says to us. This is a healthy diet of preaching. It ensures that we cover the breadth of what's available to us in Scripture, and it allows us to dig deeply into the words that God has given to us. But there is another way that we can also read the Bible that is equally as important and equally as valid, and that is to read the Bible biblically or thematically. Because the Bible, although it was written by many human authors, and although there are a lot of books and chapters and topics, the Bible was also written by one author, God. And like any other book, it has a message, a coherent, overarching, thematic message for us. And the best way to understand that word from God is to read large portions of Scripture all together, to read them over and over again, and to understand how the different parts of the Bible all fit together into one coherent narrative of redemption, the story of how God deals with his people. And so it is in that regard that we are going to encounter the book of Genesis today. Our first four sermons covered the themes of, in creation, garden where we discovered that God's design for all of creation is to fill the earth with a place where His people can glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. The Garden of Eden will one day cover all the earth and God will live there with His people. That is God's ultimate mission. When we read about the fall of man, the first sin, we encountered the theme of the seed of the woman versus the seed of the serpent. The serpent tempted Adam and Eve, and they sinned, and God condemned the serpent and Adam and Eve, cursing all of them. And when he cursed the serpent, he promised that there would come one of the seed of the woman who would crush the seed of the serpent. 
And so we learn from that theme that God chooses his people, the seed of the woman, not based on their birth order or their power or their cultural impressiveness or even their goodness. And in fact, he often likes to specifically choose the weak or unexpected because that teaches us that ultimately the true seed of the woman who will crush the serpent is not you or me, but rather Jesus. When we studied the flood, God introduced to us the theme of judgment. And even more specifically, we discovered that God's judgment is the means of salvation. Like the flood, judgment wipes away evil and cleanses creation to make way for rebirth. And likewise, God wipes away our sin through judgment and then makes us a new man in Christ. And then lastly, God showed us at Babel that the efforts of man to usurp him amount to nothing. But God's mission to spread his glory to all of the people, to all of the ends of the earth, will not be thwarted, even by our greatest efforts. And so that was the first 11 chapters of Genesis, those four sermons. The next one sermon today will cover Genesis 12 through 25. And so I am going to give an extremely high-level overview of the life of Abraham, the father of Israel, as recorded in the book of Genesis. I am going to emphasize certain parts of the story that will be significant to our theme today, and I'm going to completely skip over huge portions of his life. So if you are wondering, when are we going to get to this part? We probably won't. Because Abraham did a lot of things, and God did a lot of things with Abraham, and we are only going to deal with particular ones that address our theme today. And interspersed through this overview, I'm going to mark out a few important points that will be good to remember for later to support future points. And then after our quick overview of Abraham, I will then dive into our selected theme, a covenant. We will look at what a covenant is, the characteristics of a covenant based on what we find here in Genesis, and then we will look to the rest of Scripture to see how God uses covenants all throughout the Bible. And then finally, we will consider how a covenant is meaningful to us here today. So first, an overview. I'm going to go through Abraham's life and just summarize and mark out a few things for us to look at in more depth. Again, obviously, we're skipping most of his life. First four sermons covered 11 chapters. This one alone is another 12. So I'm going to be very aggressive with the, the cutting. But we see in Genesis chapter 11. Chapter 11 ends with a toledoth. In other words, these are the generations of. And we have found earlier in Genesis that when the author, the compiler of Genesis, that's Moses, uses a toledoth, saying these are the generations of, that is his way of marking out chapters. Not the chapters like the numbers in your Bible. Those are only there, added later, for us to reference easily because like everyone's Bible pages are different, so we need agreed-upon numbers to look things up. But narratively, the book of Genesis is divided up into narrative sections separated by these are the generations of. So we have reached the end of one section in Genesis chapter 11 and the beginning of another. And in fact, this particular break is not just the Toledoth that separates Babel from Abraham. This is the Toledoth that separates all of history before Israel with all of history all the way up until Jesus. 
So this break between Genesis 11 and 12 is actually not the break between Genesis 11 and 12, but the break between Genesis 11 and the entire rest of the Old Testament. This is a significant, a very large turning point. And you can even see that in the way that the narrative is structured. The first 11 chapters of Genesis are dealing with all mankind, either, either represented through Adam as the first of all mankind, or in large groups of people over all the earth, God is dealing with all creation. And then in chapter 12, he changes, and now he is dealing with specific people, namely beginning with Abraham. So Genesis 12 begins. The Lord said to Abram, there is no introduction of who Abram is, and this tells us, as you will often find in Genesis and all of the Bible, that the authors assume that they are writing to people who already know who Abram is. This is not a novel where when a new character is introduced, we need to be given a description or some characteristics so that we can remember who they are and why they're important. The Bible is instead a work that is already written to the people of God. So we know who Abram is. If you have never read the Bible, the first time you read through it, you will not know a huge amount of what you encounter because you are meant to read it over and over again so that later when you come and you say, the Lord said to Abram, you know who Abram is, and you know what to expect, and you are then able to see more deeply what God has to say. So who is Abram? We can cheat then and look ahead. We will, all, we will find that Abram will have his name changed to Abraham. So that sounds more familiar. God is going to make an arrangement with Abram in which he changes his name to Abraham. I'm going to try to call him Abram, when the Bible calls him Abram, and Abraham after, I'm probably going to mix them up and slip back and forth. Please bear with me. They are the same person. Abram is a man from the land of Ur. Ur was a large city in Mesopotamia, and we know from future information about Abraham that Abraham probably had a household of between one and 2,000 people. So this was not necessarily a king type of arrangement, but Abraham was sort of a governmental figure of a relatively large group of people. He was not just the dad with some kids, but he was the, the manager, the owner, the steward of a large amount of flocks and probably land and servants, like employees and all of their families. So Abraham was a man of, of fair importance in the land of Ur. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abraham went as the Lord had told him. So this is a promise from God, and it introduces several prominent themes while also calling back to themes that we've already seen in Genesis. God promises here to Abram land and seed and blessing. And that should hopefully sound familiar from our earlier study of Genesis. God's ultimate design for the world is to cover his earth, cover the earth with his garden kingdom, land, which will be filled with God's children, seed, who will be with him and enjoy him forever, blessing. Land and seed and blessing. So God is taking his purpose for the world and he is promising it specifically to Abraham and his children. 
God is choosing for himself a people. God's people. And the father of God's people will be Abram. Now we're going to skip over some stuff. First, we can see that Abram obeys God. His silent obedience will be a common occurrence in this story when Abram is doing right. Often, when Abram speaks, that's the mistake. When Abram quietly does what God says, that's the right choice. So Abram obeys. He has faith that God's promises will come true, and his faith then results in obedience. Abram goes to the land that God promised, but then there is a famine. And so he and his household and his nephew Lot and his household, who they all traveled together, they go to Egypt. And while in Egypt, Abram lies about his wife, Sarai, which results in her being taken into Pharaoh's harem. So not off to a great start. He obeys God, but quickly falls to the side. But Abram returns to the land. He fends off a coalition of bandit kings that are threatening his nephew Lot. And again, this tells us that Abram's household is a large group because Genesis says that he fielded 318 trained warriors among all the other people that would be involved. But the one thing that I would like you to take from these chapters that we're skipping over, and especially the incident in Egypt, is that Abram is not necessarily a super righteous guy. He is often cowardly, and he often lies, and he often tries to take matters that God has promised him into his own hands against God's plan. This is going to happen again. But, ultimately, Abram was faithful. He believed God. He believed God's promises. And, if you will, he put his money where his mouth was. Because he packed up from his comfy home and his land and all the people that he knew and all of the respect and social capital and things that he owned and he moved into a hostile land just because God said to. And so now we come to the introduction of our theme for today, out of Genesis, out of the story of Abraham. And this is, in fact, the, the formal introduction of one of the most important words in all of Scripture, the covenant. In Genesis 15, God, for the first time, explicitly forms a covenant with Abram. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. The heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. This would probably have been like Abram's right-hand man, like his steward, the manager of his household. And so since Abram had no children, all of his estate would simply pass to the, the next most competent person to take it over. So Abram has been promised seed, but has no children. He says, the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and so a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. He brought him outside and said, Look toward the heavens and number the stars, if you are able to number them. And then God said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteous. Remember, again, that Abram was not necessarily a great guy. Moses, who was either writing or compiling this text, would have considered Abraham to be a hero. And yet Moses does not do any whitewashing. Abram was just as inclined to sin as you and I. And yet, he is here called righteous. 
not by his actions, but his belief is counted as righteous. And God said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? So he said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over the other. But he did not cut the birds. And when the birds of prey came down onto the carcasses, Abram drove them away. So this is another example of where if you encounter this for the first time, you may not understand what's going on. It's important to recognize that the idea of a covenant and this particular ceremony of a covenant was actually common to Abram. He would have already known about this. This was a way for two parties to make an agreement with one another. And the implication that we are to understand is that we cut these animals in half and the parties of the covenant walk through the halves of the animals and the understanding is this is representing what I am calling down upon myself, the curse that I am bringing upon myself should I breach this covenant. So the, the figure of speech that's used in the Bible and in other ancient texts to make a covenant is literally to cut a covenant. You cut a covenant with another person. And continuing, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your offspring, I give this land. So God has promised to Abram land and seed and blessing. And when God comes back to Abram later, Abram says, I haven't gotten any of that yet. I don't have any children. How am I supposed to have seed? I don't have any land. I don't feel like I have blessing." And God says, fine then, I will make a covenant with you. If you don't believe my promise, then I will make a covenant. I will put my own self, my life, insofar as God can speak that way, on the line to swear these things to you. We find later in Scripture, the New Testament, it teaches us that God had no higher name by which to swear, and so he simply swore this covenant on his own name. God is putting his character, his unchangeability on the line, making this covenant. God says, your very own son will be your heir. But Abram, again, tries to handle things on his own. Another 10 years go by. So understandable. Abram is wondering, I'm getting old. Where is my seed? And Abram has his doubts. So Abram and Sarai devise a plan to have Abram bear a son by Sarai's servant, Hagar. This plan is successful, if you can call it that, in that Hagar does indeed conceive and bear a son. But Sarai deals harshly with her, and so she flees into the wilderness. But an angel of the Lord ministers to her and tells her to return. And we will see more about her son, Ishmael, in a moment. After this failed attempt to bring about God's covenant by human means, another 13 years pass until God speaks to Abram again in chapter 17. I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you, and you may, and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations. Kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring 
after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant, to be a God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and your offspring the land of your sojourners, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. This should sound familiar. We're clearly revisiting the same covenant again that God already made and not making a new one. But God does not only call back to the covenant ceremony in chapter 15 where he promised Abraham's descendants land, but he calls all the way back to the promise he made in chapter 12 where he promised that Abraham's descendants will bless all the nations. God continues, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you, throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with money or any foreigner who is not of your offspring, he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall all surely be circumcised. And so shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people, for he has broken my covenant. And so now God has introduced into this covenant a sign of the covenant. And specifically, this is referring to circumcision. Now I want to differentiate here now between a covenant and a contract. A contract is a legal agreement between two parties where one party agrees to perform a service or pay an amount of money and the other party also agrees to perform a service and pay an amount of money and those two agreements are contingent upon one another. I will pay you if you cut my grass. If you don't cut my grass, I will not pay you. If I do not pay you, you will not cut my grass. This is a contract. And when a contract is formed, if you want to change the contract, you have to ratify a new contract. You can't come back later and say, I'm only going to pay you half as much as I said I was going to in the contract. It doesn't work that way. You have to start over and make a new contract. But a covenant is different. A covenant is a, a personal agreement. It is a relational agreement. It is a guarantee. And bear with me here. It is a double unilateral promise. So unilateral means that one party takes all the action. So in this case, a covenant is a double unilateral promise. One party says, I will do this no matter what. And the other party says, I will do this no matter what. And that's why we call a marriage a covenant and not a contract in sickness and health for better or worse till death do us part. Not a contract, but a covenant. And so likewise here, God is not making a contract with Abraham, but a covenant where God says, I will do this no matter what. And Abraham, you will do this no matter what. And so this sign of circumcision, it is not a term of the contract. God is not saying that if you get circumcised, then I will give you my end of the deal. God is instead saying, you are in my covenant. And so to signify, sign, to signify that you are a member of this covenant, this is what you will do. And another key point that's introduced here is the idea that God's covenants, again, unlike a contract, can be revealed progressively. And so just to be clear, when I say progressively, I'm not using that word in like a political or a philosophical sense. I literally just mean like progress. Some now, more later, more later. It builds, it progresses. 
So again, with a contract, if I wrote a contract with you and then I came back later and said, actually, this other stuff is also in the contract that you didn't know about, it wouldn't work that way. But a covenant is different. A covenant is a relational promise. And God, in particular, is able to say of a covenant, I am revealing more of this covenant to you. You were not ready to hear the whole covenant at this time, but now I am revealing to you more of my covenant. So God progressively reveals this covenant sign. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed, and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Abraham says, it's impossible. I can't have a baby. Sarah can't have a baby. But look, I, already, I have Ishmael. You can use Ishmael. I already did it. God said, no. Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him. And I will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I shall make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. So Abraham is still trying to offer a solution to this so-called problem that he thinks he's found with God's plan. God has promised land and seed and blessing. And Abraham has faith, but he does not fully understand or trust God. His faith is weak, but we have seen that apparently his faith, weak though it may be, is still sufficient to be counted to him as righteousness. But God reiterates, no, he is not interested in partnering with Abraham to accomplish this promise. God says, I don't need your help. My part of this arrangement is to give you land and seed and blessing, and your part of this arrangement is to obey me and take the sign of circumcision. So, I, God, will take care of my promises. And we also see God demonstrate graciousness to Ishmael, despite the fact that he will not inherit the covenant. So Abraham leaves again, and in faith he obeys, circumcising all of the males in his household, remember this for later, including Ishmael. Now there is much more to say about Abraham's life, some good and some bad. The author clearly wants to show us that Abraham was not always righteous, because he is trying to emphasize that Abraham's faith is what sets him apart, not his greatness, not his works. And so we're going to conclude the overview of Abraham's life by looking at one final story. Sarah does indeed become pregnant. She bears a son. They name him Isaac, just as God foretold. And when Isaac is older, clues in the text show us that he is probably like a teenager or maybe a young man, God speaks to Abraham one last time. After these things, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. This is one of the most difficult sentences to read, I think, in all of Scripture, because God, after promising land and seed and blessing, after promising to be the God of Abraham and all of his people, commands Abraham to do the unthinkable, to kill his son. 
When God first makes the promise of land and seed and blessing to Abraham, to Abram, he doesn't believe God. He suggests, well, you know, maybe my steward, Eliezer, could inherit this promise. Abraham again tries to handle it himself with Hagar and Ishmael. When God promises a son by Sarah, Abraham laughs. And now, after all of that, and after seeing that God is faithful, God calls back to that same language in the original promise. He says, remember, Abraham, what I said. Go back to that first time that we spoke. God said, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And now, he says to Abraham, go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. It's as if God is saying, Abraham, do you trust me yet? Do you really, really trust me yet? Do you believe that I am going to make good on my promise and my covenant as your God without any help from you? In essence, God is asking, is your faith complete? And now finally, silently, Abraham obeys. I'm going to return to the detail of this last story later. I just want you to hold that in your mind while we go now to a broader look at our theme of covenant. So as I've said, the theme that we're going to draw from the life of Abraham is one of covenant. I'm first going to expand on what we can learn about a covenant purely based on the life of Abraham. So Abraham himself could have known these things to be true about God's covenant, even without all of the rest of the revelation that we have in the Bible. The Bible says a lot about covenants, and so we know a lot about God's covenants from those things, but even if we didn't, there are some things that we could still know. And then I am going to turn to the rest of the book, the rest of the Bible, to see how this theme unfolds. So again, a covenant is a double unilateral promise between two parties with the implication that the breach of the covenant is punishable by death. It is not a contract, it is not an exchange of services, but it is a personal, relational commitment, like a marriage. A marriage is a covenant and not a contract. And likewise, this covenant between God is one in which God will bless Abraham and his people, and Abraham and his descendants will believe in and worship God as their God. And it is a good thing that God made a covenant with Abraham and not a contract, because Abraham would have breached it immediately. But what else can we learn about God's covenants from Abraham's life? If you are a student of the Bible, you will hopefully know that there is much more to find. A covenant is the way in which God deals with his people throughout all of Scripture. But even without the benefit of the rest of the Bible, we can see first that God initiates all of his covenants. This is not a situation where you come to God or to a mysterious deity that you don't know and you offer sacrifices or make promises or beg and plead, please come down, where are you? Come to me. Unlike all the other peoples of the earth who worship their gods in this way, God comes to Abraham. God is not like those other gods. He is always the first mover. He is always the chooser of his people. He is always the one who offers the covenant. Second, we see that God deals with one head as a representative of a whole people. God's covenant with Abraham is clearly meant and shown to encompass a covenant with all of Abraham's people. And so the word we use for that, you may remember it from the earlier series, Abraham is the federal head of the mankind side of this covenant. That means that he, like Adam, is the federal head of all mankind, 
Abraham represents. He stands in for. He is legally able to take action on behalf of the entire body, the entire people that God has chosen. Third, we see that God's covenant may be revealed progressively. As I said before, God has shown us that his promises do not need to be fully understood in order to enter into a covenant with him. The terms do not change, for God does not go back on his word, but we may not be ready or able or willing to fully understand all that God has for us. So faith, then, is required. Not only faith that what God says will happen will happen, but also faith that even if I don't understand what God is saying, that because he is God and because his promises are based on his character, they can be trusted. And in fact, Abraham was confident when God first made the promise to him that he did not know the whole picture because God promised seed and Abraham had no children. And then after Abraham did have a child, God said to bind him and sacrifice him. So surely Abraham must not know the whole picture, and yet he had faith. The point is belief and entry into a covenant with God is not contingent on understanding but on faith. And so now it is this progressive revelation that will be vital to understanding how God uses covenants throughout the rest of Scripture. So let's now, with that in mind, turn to other places besides Abraham to see where else the theme of covenant appears. And again, a covenant is the way in which God makes arrangements with his people. And so we're going to leave out a lot of stuff, a lot of covenants in the Bible, a lot of references to covenants, a lot of teaching about covenants. This is the tiniest sampling of them. So we find in Scripture several covenants that are made with particular people or with certain parameters that are met, covenants that maybe you could say are completed. For example, God covenants with David that one of David's descendants will sit on the throne forever. David did not know what that would mean. We know that David's son, Solomon, did not sit on the throne forever. David's son's sons did not sit on the throne forever. But Jesus, who was descended from David, is now on the throne forever. So God's covenant with David has been completed, accomplished. God's covenant with Abraham is partially complete. The land that God marked out was, in fact, given to Israel exactly as God promised, was given to Abraham's children. But I would like to draw your attention to one particular covenant that hangs over all of Scripture, a covenant that God entered into with all of mankind, every single person who was ever born, through the federal head of Adam. Hosea chapter 6, God says through his prophet, I desire steadfast love, not sacrifice, the knowledge of God, rather than burnt offerings. But, like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. They dealt faithlessly with me. So God says that love for him is more important than sacrifices. That sounds true. But then God says, like Adam, they, the people of Israel, have transgressed the covenant. What covenant? Because if you go back to Adam, if you go back to Genesis 1, 2, 3, the word covenant, the Hebrew word for covenant, is not there. And yet, Hosea clearly treats God's arrangement with Adam as if it was a covenant. So let's look back at God's dealing with Adam. God created Adam. God gave Adam dominion over the earth. God instructs Adam, obey my command. And so even though it's not made explicit, we know from the rest of Scripture and from clues in the text of those earliest chapters of Genesis that this instruction 
was the, the first inkling, the first revelation of what is called the covenant of works. The covenant of works can be summed up as follows. I will be your God and you will be my people. God says, my side of the covenant will be to live in perfect communion with you, my people, forever. Man's side of the covenant is to obey God, to have our Lord as our God. But Adam, as we all know, breached this covenant. He did not obey. God promised to be with Adam, and he was. Adam breached the covenant of works. And we see in Romans 5, if it were not self-evident, which it is, but we even see in Romans 5, that sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam, and death through sin. And so death has spread to all men because all sinned. God engaged in the covenant of works with Adam as the federal head of all mankind. Everyone who has ever been born, every child of Adam, is under the covenant of works. And, as Paul writes in Romans 5, death, which is the punishment for the breach of that covenant, has spread to all men because all sinned. Paul also links the covenant of works to the covenant that God made with Israel through Moses. A few sentences later in Romans, he says that death reigned from Adam to Moses. So God tells Moses in Exodus 19, If you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all people, for all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This is the language of the covenant of works. If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all people. I will be your God, you will be my people. And yet again, we know that this covenant God made with Moses, with all of Israel at Sinai, man does not obey this covenant. Even Moses, in Deuteronomy 29, he's retelling the covenant to the Israelites. He already forewarns that they will fail to uphold the covenant again. Moses already knew that being obedient to God would not work because man is not obedient to God. The story of the whole Old Testament is mostly a story of how God's people break the covenant of works over and over again. And the consequences of this covenant breaking are just as they were with Adam, just as they were with Abram. Those dead animals, when God cut a covenant with Abram, tell the story of what happens to those who break covenants. The wages of sin is death. And in Galatians 3, all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of law and do them. So you should know, you'll probably notice throughout this sermon, that most of Romans and Galatians and Hebrews are just teachings about covenants. A covenant mindset is necessary to truly understand them and to illuminate much about how we ought to read the Old Testament and then the New Testament together. So I would encourage you to revisit them after today, reading them covenantally. It would be perfectly reasonable for me to just read Galatians 3 or Hebrews 11 and then just end the sermon at that point. I won't. I would like you to do that later. But instead, I want to ask the question that should hopefully be on everyone's mind at this point. If we've all broken the covenant of works, which we have, and the penalty for it is death, which it is, why are we here today? Why are we in this room here today? And maybe more poignantly, 
How can we be saved from the covenant of works? In the Old Testament, God repeatedly reveals that he knows that the covenant of works will not save anyone. And he reveals, little by little, progressively, that he has another plan. And this plan, this promise that God makes to his people, in a very distant manner, is first revealed right after Adam's sin. God doesn't destroy Adam and Eve immediately, as would be his right based on the covenant of works. Instead, he shows mercy on them. And he even reveals the first inkling of a future promise. As he curses the serpent who tempted them, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God has already revealed that one day there will come a seed to defeat the serpent. More revelation still than comes to Abram. First, we see that God counts Abram's faith as righteousness. Then he promises that Abram's seed will bless all the peoples of the earth. We continually see hints and glimpses of this plan that God has for redemption. Abraham and Isaac is another such image. Moses, after he foretells the disobedience of Israel in Deuteronomy, after he reiterates the covenant, he says, you're not going to obey it. But nonetheless, he says, return to the Lord and he will have mercy on you. How can you return to the Lord after you've breached the covenant for which the penalty is death? Moses does not know what it is, but he knows that there will be a way. And so surely, over time, as the story of the Old Testament unfolds, the promises, the progressive revelation become more clear. Joel, the prophet, writes that it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And Jeremiah writes, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. This is not like the covenant of works where God says, if you obey me, you will be my people. This is a new covenant where God says, you will be my people. Now there still remains a question. If God says he will make a new covenant to supersede the covenant of works, but there's one thing that we know about God and covenants above all else, and it's that God never breaks a covenant. He never breaks a promise. Hebrews 6 says that when God made the covenant with Abram, he swore by his own name because there was no higher name so God just can't take the covenant of works and throw it away because that wouldn't be a covenant and God wouldn't be God. Even the sacrifices given by Israel, all the endless blood of the animals spilt over their sins were not enough to satisfy the penalty for the breach of the covenant of works. So now let me return to Abraham and Isaac. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. He cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. 
Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. And they went, both of them together. Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. He said, Here I am, my son. Isaac said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. And so they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord Will Provide. Brothers and sisters, Abraham's righteousness was not in his good works. We have seen how lacking those were. Abraham's righteousness was in his faith that God would provide what he promised. God would make sure that his covenant stands no matter what. And so what we can learn from this is that, yes, God knows that you have broken the covenant of works. And yes, the punishment for breaking a covenant is death. But what does God say? What does God say to Abraham? He says, I will provide. I, God, will uphold both sides of the covenant. I will uphold my side and yours. And Abraham, although he knew nothing of how God would provide, he knew, he had faith that God would provide. Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb. And then one day, thousands of years later, John the Baptist sees a man approaching and says, Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. God has provided a lamb, a sacrifice to pay for the penalty for the covenant of works, and that lamb's name is Jesus. In Hebrews 4, it says, We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, so let us hold fast our confession. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. God provides one who does obey the covenant of works. Jesus did uphold the covenant of works. Galatians 3 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse. God provides one who will suffer the punishment for breaking the covenant of works. 1 Peter 1 says, You were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. Jeremiah says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant to remember their sin no more. And Jesus said on the night he was betrayed, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus, by living a perfect life, 
fully upholding the covenant of works and by dying the death deserved by those who break it, even though he did not, has satisfied the covenant of works. He has completed the covenant of works. Hebrews 9 sums it up. Therefore, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So Abraham, although he did not know anything about what it meant at the time, he had faith that God would provide. He is our example, not because his works were good, but because his faith. Abraham did not satisfy the covenant of works, but his faith entered him into the new covenant of grace. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteous. Beloved, the covenant of works will lead to your destruction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Are you greater than Abraham, the father of all God's people? He sinned. He committed adultery. He lied. He was a coward. But by his faith, he was joined to the new covenant and therefore counted righteous. Even though he did not know the name at the time, his faith in Jesus, his faith in what God would provide, saved him from the condemnation deserved under the covenant of works. And let me just say it very clearly. Every single person who has ever been called righteous, everyone who has ever been saved, Abel, Abraham, Moses, David, Peter, Paul, me, and you, everyone who has been saved has been saved by belief in their own unworthiness and in God's promise to save them. There is no other way to be cleansed from sin. The sacrificial animals did not do it. Only God himself in the flesh, living a righteous life and dying in your stead, can resolve the covenant of works. Abraham was saved because of faith in a future promise. Abraham was saved by faith in Jesus. And so then, like Abraham, you have two choices. You can live under the covenant of works, or you can live under the new covenant of grace. All mankind is born into the covenant of works by Adam. That covenant says, obey God and live, or disobey God and die. But you are also offered a new covenant. You may not understand all that the Bible teaches. You may not understand all of God's promises. You are certainly not worthy of being called righteous based on your works. But like Abraham, you can believe. Believe that you cannot be righteous. Believe that you cannot be near God. Believe that you cannot satisfy the covenant of works. Believe that God has made a way. Believe in Jesus, in his death and his resurrection. If you are already in Christ today, if you are a member of the new covenant, flee the temptation to try to take matters into your own hands. Abram's faith was weak. He sinned against God and his wife and Hagar and Ishmael, trying to earn God's promises for himself. He was not righteous because of any of those efforts. Even if they would have worked, they would not have been enough. He was not righteous because of his circumcision, the sign of the covenant did not make him righteous, for Ishmael was circumcised, but not in the covenant. Your upbringing, your church attendance, your baptism are not what makes you righteous. The sign of the new covenant, the sign of the church is baptism. Baptism does not make you righteous. It is the sign, not the deed. The belief and the faith are what joins you into the new covenant. I'll say it again and again, the only entry into the new covenant, the only path into the covenant of grace is the same as it was for Abraham as it is for you. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. 
When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. My father, behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. The Lord will provide. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for your unchanging covenants. Even that covenant of works under which I am condemned, it still reveals to me your holiness and your righteousness. It reveals to me that you desire to have a people for your own possession, a people to belong to you. It shows me that I am not worthy of being that people. But God, thank you for not ending your revelation there, but for showing us that there will be a future promise, another way, a new covenant of grace. And Lord, I even thank you that I am born in this time with this complete revelation of Jesus, that I need not wonder what God's promises will be, but I know that God's promises are Jesus. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. Please stand. In minor keys, you Zion City, where beside the King I walk, within my heart has found its treasure, Christ is mine forevermore. All sermons are released under a Creative Commons, non-commercial, non-commercial, no Oh my soul, or listen to past sermons. For his love is my reward. Fear is gone, hope is sure. Christ is mine forevermore. Come rejoice now, oh my soul.